0: Now, guys, um, when I started this series on uh, the book of Ephesians back in August, it was August the 7th, I, I, I told you then that I was going to restrain myself by limiting myself to, um, to two sermons per chapter. If I didn't, it would, be, it would prolong it interminably. So um, uh, I've done that. We come to chapter 6 now, and... Um, Of course, chapter 6 begins with some very tantalizing instructions. Instructions that every parent in this room absolutely love. The instructions are, children, obey your parents and the Lord, for this is right. And I bet you that uh, many of you parents would like for me to spend uh, my next 30 minutes in pounding that piece of instruction into your children's precious little hard heads. But I'm not. Um, I'm going to draw both of my sermons for chapter 6 out of a section that has come to be known as the whole armor of God. It seems to me it's vitally important. And so uh, it starts in verse 10. And uh, I'm going to read just four verses this morning. And then we'll come back and wrap up the series on Ephesians the next time I'm with you. Um, So let me read to you, beginning at verse 10, Ephesians chapter 6, at verse 10. uh, I'll read just four verses. You follow as I read. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. To stand firm. The grass withers and the flower fades. But the word of our God. It endures forever. Guys, you'll notice uh, that Paul begins this uh, closing section of his letter to the Ephesians. His closing remarks. He begins with the word finally. Finally. he has a final piece of instruction that he wants to give to people that he assumes are, are trying to live the Christian life uh, as he outlined it in chapters 1 through 5. You remember those, those statements about uh, be imitators of God, to walk in uh, worthy of the gospel, and to take no part in the unfruitful light, uh, deeds of darkness, all that. He assumes that there's some people out there who, in response to the grace of God that saved them that they're going to try to live like that. They're not going to, they're going to try to live like that. Not because they're going to try to earn their, their salvation, but they're going to, they're going to live like that in response to a God who had saved them by sovereign grace. And so he says to those people, he says, uh, if you plan to do so, it is inevitable that you will run head on into an enemy. Satan. Now, guys, I dare say that my biggest challenge this morning is to convince you that that is a reality. My biggest challenge is to convince you that what, we're, what Paul is saying in here is, is something to take very seriously. We're far too sophisticated for this kind of hocus pocus. You know, when I say something about satanic attack, uh, your mind races to a scene from the Pirates of the Caribbean or uh, Harry Potter or, uh, or something with a real sci-fi feel to it, you know? Conflict? Battle? I mean, what are you talking about? I, I mean, um, uh, th- those words are not very often found in the vocabulary... Of 21st century believers, like you. You know, in a a lot of ways, uh, this morning, I I feel somewhat like um, Winston Churchill. (laughs) You know, guys, um, I've told you, I've told somebody this, I don't know who I've told, but um, I have been reading, this is his, this is Churchill's opus. At least, I think it's his opus. He might think that his um, history of the English-speaking world... But this is a six-volume set. I, I, I've read five volumes. I'm on the sixth one. On World War II, I, I was drawn to this uh, by the title of the first volume. Volume one is entitled The Gathering Storm. And, and I want to tell you a little bit about what's in, what's in volume one. And, and to explain why it is that I, I feel a little bit like Winston Churchill this morning. Uh, guys, you, you may recall, you... If you know anything about world history, you may recall that World War I concluded with what was known as the Treaty of Versailles. The Treaty of Versailles um, imposed some some harsh, cruel some harsh penalties on on Germany. And Germany chafed under those those penalties for about a decade. Somewhere in the the late 20s, 1920s. Um, a lunatic arose who was Austrian by birth, who came to Germany and started preaching some, some pretty radical stuff and got himself tossed into a German prison and spent about a year and a half in a German prison where he wrote his one of his famous works entitled Mein Kampf. Of course, I'm, I'm referring to Adolf Hitler. And Hitler began to rearm Germany uh, in violation of the Treaty of Versailles. Churchill, seeing what was going on in Germany, began to warn his country and their allies, particularly France. And and he was saying to his countrymen and to his allies, we've got to stop this. We've got to get him stopped. We've got to to arm ourselves. We've got to to go fight him again. We've got to fight him and, and get this stopped. But nobody really had a taste for war. After World War One and all of the atrocities about contained in it, no, nobody had to take. And, and, and Churchill had been somewhat discredited because of some losses that he had led uh, in the Dardanelles in in World War One. And so Hitler began to raise armies, build airplanes, build ships and submarines, all in violation of the Treaty of Versailles. And Churchill, all the time, all the while, is saying, Ladies and gentlemen, you must wake up. You must stop this. You must, you must, you must stop him. And was pleading with France and pleading with the other allies to, to go and get Hitler stopped. And nobody was listening. And then in 1936, or in the mid to late 30s, Hitler rises to power. And in 1936, uh, he... Retakes the Rhineland, which was a huge violation of the Treaty of Versailles. And then Hitler, I mean, Churchill is still saying, gentlemen, look at what's going on. Nobody, nobody would listen. And Then in 1938, he overtakes Austria and um, includes Austria in the German Empire. Churchill continues to warn. Nobody will listen. And then in 1938, September the 30th, of 1938, Czechoslovakia is sold out by England and France in a meeting that took place in Munich, Germany. And you might remember, if you've ever known anything about history, that Neville Chamberlain, the Prime Minister of England, flies back to London. He gets off the plane and he waves this document and he says, Peace with honor. That was in September of 1938. In less than a year, on September the 1st of 1939, Hitler invades Poland. And war is declared. There was a little lull after Poland, and then on May the 10th of 1940, Hitler attacks France. And the French army, aided by the British army, Withstand the blitzkrieg of the German army for the entirety of three weeks. And they capitulate and surrender. The British army is thrown into the sea and rout and ruin and Dunkirk, leaving all of their equipment behind. And within six weeks, Britain is standing alone, completely unarmed with Germany, a victorious Germany and Italy at her throat. Why? Why? Because nobody had a stomach to talk about battle. Nobody could be bothered with a discussion about conflict and war. Neville Chamberlain, the uh, the prime minister, resigns in in disgrace. And England turns to Winston Churchill to lead them through the dark days of that war, a war for which no one had prepared. You know ladies and gentlemen, there's a there's a biblical version of this story. It's found in Luke 14 verses 31 through 33. It's a story that Jesus tells about a king, about a king who went out to battle who had not um, properly calculated and assessed his enemy. And so he goes out ill-prepared and, um, of course, is routed. And uh, Jesus uses him as an example of utter foolishness. And so, ladies and gentlemen, I stand here this morning with a little bit of Jesus influencing me and a lot of Winston Churchill, to try and convince you of a battle, a battle of which many of you don't even believe it exists. Gang, one of the reasons that we don't believe it exists is a word that you find in verse 11, I think. It's the word schemes. I love that word. Actually, some of your translations uses the word wilds. The wilds of the devil. You know what that's talking about, don't you? You know what schemes are, don't you? Ladies and gentlemen, Jesus told us that Satan was a liar. He was the father of lies. He plots, he schemes, he tricks. He's shrewd, he's cunning. And and one of the reasons that we don't believe in this battle that I'm talking about is because we've fallen prey to wilds to deceptions. You know, in another place the apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 2 talks about he admonishes the Corinthians not to be outwitted by Satan. And ladies and gentlemen, I'm afraid we've been outwitted on many occasions. We've been deceived. You know, I, I told this story on a Wednesday night. My wife will probably shoot me that I'm going to tell it again. But um, several months ago, uh, I think it was back in the summer. I, I had lunch with a young man who had been previously married to a Playboy bunny. Everybody knows what that is, don't you? I hope. And um, he told me about uh, his marriage to her. And, and once they got married, he discovered that the only thing that she really wanted was a baby. And so she got pregnant and she left him. Um, and, um, you know, he played with her to come back and she wouldn't come back. And um, she had the baby and then she, uh, she had a couple more marriages after that. And she couldn't keep a job and... and um, uh, she she um, uh, dealing with her uh, over what was now his daughter uh, 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 was was just awful and he he uh, he used this term I, I didn't make up this term he, he said she was just a real nut job and I and I came home from that lunch and I told my wife this and and this is where it really gets um, th- this young woman was a miss i don't know april 2004 with playboy magazine and 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 she was a centerfold and i told my wife that i wanted to go online and i wanted to find this picture <laughs> you bet I did <laughs> i wanted to find this picture and i wanted i wanted to print it off and, and i wanted to laminate it and i wanted to stick it in my desk not for pure hour reasons But I wanted to use it on occasion when when some man came into my office... And started telling me about how the marriage had gotten rocky, and oh yes, there is a, there is a, there's a third person in this thing. There's a triangle here, and and you know I'm I'm considering leaving my wife because of because of mm, you know her and and yada and, and and at that point I wanted to reach into my desk and I wanted to get out this laminated picture and I wanted to say take a look at this mm, it's nice I don't know what you think don't you like that <laughs> you like this do you do you All right. Now let me tell you the truth. This woman was abused by her father and her mother, uh, her father and her brother. She's a nut job, can't keep a job been through serial marriages. But my friend, this is what Satan offers you. And the truth is. She's a nut job. But we fell for the lie. We got we got overtaken by the snare. We became a victim of the of his wilds. Ladies and gentlemen. The primary way that Satan works on us is that he, is, is he does that through our minds. He, he inserts doubts. He, he overwhelms us with fears. He, he, he sprinkles in evil thoughts. Not only is he sinister and malevolent, he's tricky. He's crafty. He's cunning. He's shrewd. He is a he is a master of the plausible argument. You know, guys, sometimes sometimes our failings are, are not because that we are so evil and so wicked, but because we are so, if I may use this offensive word, because we're so stupid. We get outwitted. We get snookered. By one of the wilds we get deceived and you see the implication is that means that some of our evil is avoidable the new testament describes satan as a roaring lion and that roaring lion led some of us straight into a trap a trap that we never saw coming you know a phone call an email You know, guys, when, when I'm warned about impending temptation, when I'm warned that some kind of temptation is about to come, man, I do pretty well. The problem is, he never warns. And the one warning that I do get here in Ephesians chapter 6 ignore. Wicked we are, but stupid we are too. It's all made worse by forgetting the fact that our enemy is full of schemes. We were set up. Guys, the Christian life is a minefield. It's um, normal Christian living takes place in the midst of a relentless struggle, which means that the Lord's strength and the Lord's armor is indispensable, which is what this text is about. Guys, if I could just pause just long enough to just take you down one quick side road. Because I want to tell you about one of his schemes that I see rather frequently. I see it in myself. I see it in my children. But I see it in you as well. It's called depression. Um, I know there's a lot of degrees of depression, and I'm certainly no expert on the subject, but... The, the the common variety of depression that I seem to talk about six times a year with somebody is produced by getting us to concentrate. I'll put it like this: concentrate on ourselves. Let me explain what I mean. We 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 go do something wrong. We lose our temper. We we uh, we we. Uh, shake our fist at a driver on the expressway. I mean, we just do something ugly and that really concerns us. And then we start thinking, my goodness, I, mean, I didn't know that I really was that bad. And then then I keep looking and I keep looking and, and, and I keep finding things that are that are really ugly about me. And, and and it's like I'm walking through a forest and I come to a rock and, and I sit down on the rock and then I think, okay, I, I get off the rock and I lift it up and, and I look underneath the rock and there's all these little squirrely things and that that race around and and they're creepy little crawly things that kind of race around and 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 then I let the rock back down because I don't want to look anymore because it's ugly I had a man say to me one time you need to lift that rock up just long enough to know that you need Jesus Christ you need to look at that stuff just long enough to know that you must race to the gospel What happens is that we get tricked. We do one bad thing, and then we begin to search around in our souls and we find another, and another, and another, and another, and another. Before you know it, I'm in depression. And I have succumbed to one of the wilds of the devil. Guys, um, before itemizing all of our weaponry, which the Apostle Paul does in verses 13 through 20, which we'll get to next week. Paul gives us this full and frightening description of the, um, of the forces that are arrayed against us. Is in verse 12. Can I read it to you? Verse 12. For we do not wrestle against flesh. And by the way, this wasn't a, a line out of Pirates of the Caribbean. Paul says, we wrestle, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. But against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. That's a mouthful. And to be sure, modern people view this as some kind of insult to their human intelligence. But of course, modern people don't believe in the authority of Scripture either. And and many of us are not real sure that that we believe this either. If I could paraphrase it just briefly, what Paul says in verse 12 is that our enemies are not human, they're demonic. And there's not just one of them, there's several. They're multiple. The words are plural. And then he says, okay, having having told you that, Therefore, take up the whole armor. You know, guys, most of our losses, um, I, I think, can be chalked up to, uh, to self-confidence. That is, we think way too highly of ourselves. And so knowing that, um, Paul leaves behind in this text some real admonitions uh, as to what, what would be wise for us to do. And so let me show you a couple of those and, and we'll quit. Notice first in verse 10, he says, Finally, be strong in the Lord. Not, not be strong, but be strong in the Lord. Ladies and gentlemen, part of the glory of the Christian message is that though I am confronted by such a formidable enemy, I, I need not be afraid. There is a certainty of struggle that's that's a part of this, but there's also an assurance of of victory. You know, guys, one of the songs that we love to sing. It, it, I think the whole Protestant. Church loves to sing it. It's um, Luther's "A Mighty Fortress Is Our God," and um, there's a story in the in the life of Martin Luther where he was um, kind of hiding from the the the, the church once, right after the Diet of Worms, and he's up in this uh, tower in a castle and where he's hiding, and that. Um, that the forces of Satan became so real to him that he grabbed an inkwell and he threw it at Satan, splashed upon the wall. And from what I understand, I, I may be wrong about this part, but that you, that castle is still standing and you can go and see the ink spots on the wall where Luther threw his inkwell at Satan. That man wrote this. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. That word is, of course, Jesus Christ. Guys, this passage is a clarion call on the part of the Apostle Paul to be done with everything that smacks of self-confidence. If I could say it positively, it's a call for a humble reliance upon Jesus Christ. Not simply to save your soul, but to aid you in this battle. The admonition is: be strong in the Lord. And then you'll notice also in the text, verses eleven and verse in in verse eleven, he tells us to put on. In verse thirteen, he tells us to take up. My point is simply that you play a part in this battle. You are not called to passivity. Um, You're not called to unplug I'll give you some specifics next week uh, as Paul does in in his description here but you need to grasp this principle the picture here in Ephesians 6 is a picture of two armies that are that are waging war one with the other it is not a picture of some rocking chair it is two armies locked in a battle and ladies and gentlemen if we neglect this It is to invite, it is to invite um, loss after loss after loss because of his wilds. Guys, I, I bet you every one of us, every one of us have stories to tell and scars to prove it. We have stories to tell that all have basically the, the same storyline. And the storyline is this I wish I had listened. I, I wish I had listened because now is the time to prepare. Before I get that email from my old college sweetheart, I wish I had listened. Because now is the time to prepare before somebody takes me aside and shows me a way to make a quick buck. I wish I had listened because now is the time to prepare before I graduate and head off to the freedoms of the college campus. I wish I had listened. Ladies and gentlemen, failing to heed this section of Paul's letter to the Ephesian church has cost us Hasn't it? And it's still costing us. Isn't it? Gang, I'm in a battle. So are you. But we're in this battle not because of... I'm in this battle not because of who I am. I'm in this battle... Because of who I belong to. There's a scene in in Pilgrim's Progress that John Bunyan wrote. And uh, the scene is... The the name of the chapter is called Apollyon. And Apollyon is uh, Bunyan's figure for Satan. And Apollyon overtakes Christian. Christian is the name of the guy who's the, the protagonist in the book. And Apollyon overtakes Christian. And he says this to Christian. He says... I hate your prince, I hate his word, and I hate his people. Ladies and gentlemen, we're in a war because we belong to the Prince of Peace. You know, perhaps one of the reasons that this whole battle and war motif is so foreign to you is because you do not yet belong to this prince. I want to tell you one more thing about Winston Churchill. In June of 1940, in what's known as the Battle of Britain, when when Britain was bombed by the German Luftwaffe, for 57 straight nights. Um, Churchill appeared before the House of Commons trying to comfort both them and his country. And this is one line out of what he said to the House of Commons. He said, and I quote, Let us brace ourselves to our duties and so bear ourselves that if the British Empire lasts for a thousand years, men will still say, This was their finest hour. My friend, You who do not yet belong to this prince of ours, I'm calling you to your finest hour, an hour where you embrace Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord, perhaps for the first time. Let this be our finest hour. Our Father, um, forgive us that we, we like to talk deep theological truths and, and ignore um, practical warnings such as these about what we face, what our enemy is like, what his long suit is, what his stock in trade happens to be. Father, so many of us, all of us perhaps, have fallen prey to his schemes. And, boy, do we ever have the scars to prove it. So, Lord, might this portion of your word remind us of a a responsibility that is ours, and that is to arm ourselves. To, um, to ready ourselves to face an enemy that hates us because we belong to Jesus Christ. And Father, if you brought people here this morning who have not yet met this Savior of ours, and the whole idea of battle seems so remote, perhaps, oh God, it is because you have not yet drawn them to Christ. So would you do that now? Would you cause them to see that their greatest need is for an advocate, it's for a captain, it's for a general, it's for a savior. And might they see him in all of his beauty this morning. And we pray, of course, in Jesus' name.